ahead and in full disclosure, I don't have anything better to say than what we just sang, that God is so good. So here's what I'm going to do today. Uh, For those that are here that might not know about that goodness, I'm just going to tell you a story out of Acts chapter 15 where you're going to see it for yourself and you're going to walk away and say, okay, let's sing that again because he really is. Um, But before we get to that, I just want to say welcome for those that came in late. Just, I'm so glad you guys are here. My name is Jason. I'm lead pastor here. And just, again, it's just, I'm so grateful that you uh, took your, your, your Sunday morning of a holiday weekend and, and to spend with us. And so just thank you for being here. If you've never been, thank you for taking a risk this morning. You know, sometimes going to a, a new place, a church is risky. And so thank you for taking that. We hope we honor and uh, you leave here not feeling quite so risky in it. So anyway, I just want to welcome you guys. I want to pray for us. Then we're just going to start the morning uh, in the Word and Acts 15. Father, this morning we pray that um, your voice is what is heard today. And so through my stumbling through some things or whatever it is that might come out of me, God, that you, you, your word, your voice is what is heard. And so thank you, God, for the opportunity to do this. And so at this time, I would just ask, God, you just Again, fill this place, but rid us of distraction or, or discouragement or anything else that might be an obstacle to you being heard today just for the next few minutes. God, thank you for the story that is revealed and recorded, the history that is there that Luke wrote down so that we get to experience and live into Acts 15. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. For those who don't know, I really love water. In fact, tomorrow I'm going out on the water. We're going to spend six or seven hours kayaking, and I just love the water. It doesn't matter if it's a, a boat, like a motorboat or a kayak or anything like that. And so a few years back, uh, I got talked into doing something that I had never done before, and I'm going to be honest, I was a little bit apprehensive. When you are 6'5", and two, none of your business, you get apprehensive about certain things. I don't like riding on airplanes, not because I don't like to get somewhere quick. It's because they, 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 they insist on putting this in a space that is meant for, for Jamie, okay? I mean, for, for somebody that's like, you know, like, it's just not comfortable. And so I didn't know what this was going to entail. So I got talked into whitewater rafting. Anybody whitewater rafted? Okay, I love water, wasn't scared of the water. I was more afraid of, of fitting in this boat with other people or in this raft with other people, and I'm kind of tucked on that far side. And so we did this. And so before we get there, they, they set us in a raft that's on land, and he's kind of showing us a few things. And part of this is on the, on the, on the outside, you're, you're supposed to like wedge your foot kind of in the corner, and that way it kind of anchors. And all I'm thinking is that if this thing tips and my foot is wedged in there, I see compound fracture happening, okay? I don't see anchor in any sort of way. And so, again, I'd never done this, so I'm really scared. And he goes, okay, so everybody that's kind of drifted away, he said, let me tell you the most important thing I'm going to tell you all day. He said, if you lose your paddle, let it go. He says, you know, there's a good chance that we will probably, you know, spill out at some point or you might spill out. He said, here's what I need you to know. Everybody tune in. Everybody listen. He says, if you fall out or we get dumped from the boat, He said, I want you to swim as hard as you can against the current. He said, if you don't, the current is going to take you wherever it will, and it's going to make it harder or it's going to take longer for us to catch you. He said, swim as hard as you can against the current because even if you don't feel like you're going anywhere, it will make it easier and quicker for me to get to you. And so he goes, what did I just say? And everybody says, swim against the current. 
So here we get out there. We're probably 45 minutes in. We see a rock cluster ahead, and it, it looks similar to this. And so the whole time I'm just thinking, God, I will love you more if you can keep me safe when we get done with this trip. God, I, there are some things I did not do well last week, but I will do them better this week. Can we just get through this thing safely? And so here we go, and we get turned a little bit sideways going down this rapid. And so the side of the boat that I'm on catches this rock cluster. And it, the only way I know to describe this is it folds the boat up like a chalupa, like a taco. And so everybody that's on my side ends up on the other side and out of the boat. My paddle's gone. I mean, it's just, it's chaos. Chaos has ensued at this point. And I remember swim against the current, swim against the current. And so I'm a pretty good swimmer, and so I'm fighting against the current. I'm making a little bit of ground, and I'm trying to, you know, make sure everybody's okay. And I'm looking and going, okay, where's the boat? And then all of a sudden from behind, I feel a couple of hands grab my life jacket and in one tug pull me over into, and he goes, way to go, way to swim against the current. And we reset, and we went on with our trip. He says, if you don't swim against the current, drifts will happen. 2,000 years ago, Eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus has poured into the streets of Jerusalem with this crazy message. It seemed crazy anyway at the time. But it was eyewitnesses that said, hey, Jesus, whom you crucified, who you saw dead, who you put in a tomb, rose and come back to life. A lot of you saw him, he said, you know, they're saying. And so people are turning their hearts and their minds. They are giving their life to Jesus. And so over a month or so after this thing started in Acts 2, we see that about 5,000 or more, I mean, we don't know really the number. We, it gives us kind of a ballpark number in little increments, but over 5,000 people has embraced this message that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is this risen Savior, that Jesus came back to life. And in that resurrection, there is punched so much power and authority in that that not even death can hold this guy. And so people are giving their life to this. They are sold out. And you would think it's the best of times. But as a result of that, the city was in an uproar. Because what was happening was that this delicate balance that existed between the leaders of the temple, those that were Jewish, and those that were in, in, in power in Rome, you had these cultures that were already conflicting. Now all of a sudden you have this message of Jesus that neither of them are liking. And so the delicate power between those things was completely disrupted and disturbed. And as a result of that, resistance is building. Tension, it's like pulling a big rubber band and it was about to snap. And this, this thing, while it was bringing life and hope and mercy to lots of people and people's lives were being changed, families were being changed, communities were being changed. There were certain sects of people that were saying, no, it is robbing us of our power and our authority. And you got Rome going, we don't care about any of that. We just don't want disturbances in the streets. And so you've got this teetering and this tension that is being pulled. And so we see over the next few chapters that, that disciples and church leaders and other members are being pulled from their homes. They're being imprisoned. They're being flogged and beaten in the middle of the streets. And they're sternly warned to shut it down. Stop teaching. Stop witnessing to this Jesus. And then we, as we're rolling through this, we begin to see that lives not were just being altered by the threats and the warnings, that lives were being taken 
So around chapter 7, you get this young man named Stephen who puts, gets put on, again, public display for all to see as another warning, and he becomes the, a martyr. They kill him in the middle of the streets. And at that point, full-scale persecution breaks out. It was as if in that moment, everyone who was uh, disturbed by or found themselves at, in opposition to this message suddenly were given permission to mistreat and in their own ways and in their own neighborhoods began to persecute those who were claiming Jesus. And so what happens is full-scale persecution breaks out. And as a result of this, followers of Jesus in Jerusalem begin to scatter. But as they scatter, they don't leave the message. As they scatter, they take the message with them. We're going to move over here to keep the family safe, but the message moves with us. And so now all of a sudden they're found in these other pockets of the region. They're found in these far off places and they're preaching and teaching and witnessing to the same message of a risen Savior. Then something absolutely unthinkable, no one saw it coming. One of the chief persecutors, one of the chief people that was in opposition to this, a guy named Saul, has an encounter with Jesus. Oh, he knows about Jesus, but he's never encountered Jesus the way he encounters him on this day. And so it transforms his life. You probably have heard of a guy named Paul. Paul wrote most of what we consider the New Testament. He church plants. And so this guy named Paul suddenly switches teams God infiltrates his heart through this message and this hope and this mercy of Jesus. It transforms his life. And so now all of a sudden we've got this guy named Paul who has converted. He becomes a believer. And through the years he begins to take off with this message. He's planting churches everywhere. He's changing lives until he was arrested around 67 and he was executed by Nero. But the cat was out of the bag. The gospel was out. The gospel, this message of the resurrected Jesus who was bringing hope, transformation, life change, bringing mercy, bringing inclusion. The message was out and it was spreading, spreading like wildfire. Why? Because of the scattering of people coupled with this guy named Paul, people who never would have otherwise known God, who had never in their lives before known God or were allowed to know God, were in full relationship. And then Satan does what Satan does. Enter controversy. And I think Satan thought, you know, if I can persecute, if I can turn the hearts and minds of the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders... And they begin to see people die in the streets. And they begin to see moms and dads in prison. And they begin to see public beatings. That'll be enough. That'll squash this. And it didn't. It grew. And so Satan doing what Satan does, and he loves to stir in this. When a good thing's going, he's going to figure out every angle. You know, sometimes I think we, we shortchange Satan. Satan's not stupid. Satan is wise 
and he's deceiving. So here's what he does. He says, so since I can't put enough pressure on this movement from the outside, I'll attack it from the inside. And so he begins to create controversy. And guys, we are still dealing with this today. We're still dealing with this today. I think it's why people walk away from the church and never come back. And I'm really going to paraphrase, but here's the question, and here's what is still plaguing us. And Satan says, you know what? I'm going to get on the inside of this thing, and I'm going to create certain thought patterns. I'm going to create and harden hearts in such a way that this will become a question that they will deal with for the rest of their existence, perhaps. And here's the question. Who gets to be a part of the church? You go, well, well you know, our first glance, we go, well, I mean, we don't get to choose. I mean, right, whoever wants to come. But we begin to question things like, well, how good do you really have to be in order to be a full participant, a full member? Guys, look, trace back in church history. This question in some form has haunted us. Well, you can be a part, but you got to sit in a balcony. Well, you can be a part, but you're going to have to come back on Sunday night because Sunday mornings are going to be more reserved for this. Or, well, you can be a part, but you're going to need to do it over here because this church was built for a certain section of people, and you, know, you don't really, you know. And so we have struggled with this. Who is church for? So for, for going back to Acts 15 in that time period, the Jews automatically assumed that since Jesus was Jewish and he was fulfilling a Jewish prophecy, then what? You must become a Jew first in order to become a Christian. Jesus is Jewish, fulfilled Jewish prophecy. We understand that, that, that you know, he has brought about a new covenant, but you've still gotta, you, you still got to do things in order, right? And so there comes this controversy from the inside of the Jewish people wanting to kind of shackle these new church members, these new uh, partners in the ecclesia with, well, that's fine that you're here, but first you've got to kind of catch up. You've got to abide by some of the, the, the law of Moses. I mean, there's, there's a system to this thing. Meanwhile, you've got Paul who's running around all over the region at this point, planting churches. And Paul is inviting non-Jews, people that don't even know about Judaism, he's inviting them to like, everybody come on, get on board. You can be a part of the church. And what happened is they came, but they didn't behave. They started showing up, but they didn't act right. They didn't look right. And so you had Jewish people on the other side who had also given their life to Jesus, who had put their trust and hope and faith in this resurrection. But they're going, listen, something's not right. And Paul, you're not helping us. And so again, this tug of war begins to happen. It's this moment where it's like, listen, Paul, this is disruptive. And by the way, Paul, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. See, they had come from a system where there was nothing about a relationship with God easy. There were all these things that were involved. And all of a sudden, Paul's going, do you believe that Jesus came, died, rose? Yeah, that's enough. Come on. 
And they're like, it's not that easy, Paul. There's got to be more to it. And here's my thing. My hunch is, is that if you've had a bad experience with church, it probably roots and stems from this issue. I was made to not feel good enough. I was fine until I got divorced and then it was, I was fine until I didn't show up for three months and I got treated as an apostate member. It was fine until, and it roots back to this, that somewhere down the line, if you've had a negative experience with church, it's probably because you got told or it was implied that you don't get to be a part, at least not a full part. Now, if you've been a Christian for years, you probably wrestle with this too, but from the other side. I mean, we say, well, after all, I mean, Jason, the Bible has a moral code, and people have to, uh, uh, you know, they have to abide by the moral code. And so we begin to, again, create these tensions. We've got to hold people accountable, and so we have this tug of war. So I'm going to step out of the, the moment for Acts 15, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. Here's the tug of war that begins to happen, and it does not have to happen. Okay, so this is kind of a side note to, to the story in Acts 15, but it sets up Acts 15. We have come to believe, at least to some degree, that in the church, grace and truth often have to collide or conflict. Now, if you're new, just kind of bear with me. But if you're an old church person, you're, you're, you've been a Christian a minute, you know what I'm talking about. Somewhere, somewhere down the line, we kind of were, were, were taught or we, 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 we somehow slid, we drifted into this thinking that grace and truth collide, that they conflict. And so as a result of this, what we do is we build barriers or we build or draw boundaries based on one or the other. If we go with grace, then, then truth's out the door and we can just do whatever we want. If you go with only truth, it tends to, to get very legalistic quickly. And so now all of a sudden we're shackling people with all sorts of expectations and behaviors that they just can't. And so we go, well, it's either one or the other. And the problem with that is, is that when you go to one more than you go to the other, the other will begin to agitate you. One will not allow you to completely live into the other, and so it, it, it just, it's unsettling. You can't rectify the two, and it bothers you, or better yet, it scares you. It scares us to think about being so full of grace that truth might not matter, or we get so pointed over here on the truth that we're trying to dot everything and cross everything, and did I get everything right this week? And we extend ourselves, and so it scares us into this rigid relationship with God. But where's Jesus in all this? See, in the church, grace and truth often collide. But in Jesus, grace and truth were embodied. You don't believe me? John, who was a follower, a friend of Jesus, writes an account of Jesus coming onto the scene. You probably have heard parts of it. John chapter 1, he does it different. Everybody else talks about the manger and, you know, all the, the, the wise men and all these kinds of things. And John just kind of makes it a little bit more abstract and poetic. You know, he says, well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God and all these things. He's talking about Jesus. And then we get down to verse 14. Look what he says. He says the Word, talking about Jesus, became flesh, Jesus. He made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. He says, you've seen his glory. 
the glory of the one and only Son, Jesus, who came from the Father, who was sent from the Father as representation. And then look what he says. He was full of grace and truth. Full. He didn't balance the two. He didn't cut the pie in half and say, you know what, I'm going to be 50% grace and 50%, and that makes 100%. That's the way our, our thinking goes. He says, no. What if I'm full of both? What if I'm filled with both? What if I completely embody both of these things? So here's what happens. As a church, then, if we're not careful and we don't completely keep that Jesus thing in front of us, and we don't begin to model what we do collectively by what we see him do, we begin to drift. We begin to drift. And we drift toward what is familiar. We drift toward what is comfortable. Or here's a big one. We drift toward what is manageable, what we can manage. And we love to manage other people's lives. We love to manage expectations that we put on other people. And so what happens is we begin to manage. Now, before you leave here today and go, well, I guess this guy's going for like a forsaking of the truth. No, I've already covered that. We're going we're to follow Jesus. But I'm not going to discount grace because I believe that we can create a body that is full of both. Now, back to the story. Acts 15. The church at this point is about 20 years old, and, and we come to this place, this fork in the road, and it's called the Jerusalem Council. It's just a big fancy word for it. it's the first church business meeting. Anybody been a part of a business meeting? You know what I'm talking about. So about 48 or 50 A.D., historians tell us, Paul, this comes on the tail end of Paul's first missionary journey. Paul takes several missionary journeys, and as a result of that, there's people, even more people in far-off places that are, are coming to know Jesus and becoming part of this ecclesia. And so this comes on the scene in Acts chapter 15. They've got some things that they're going to have to deal with. And so here it is. Certain people, verse 1, came down from Judea and Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. I got to imagine that all the new members' classes were full of women and children. You got guys that are like, listen, dude, I'm out. You got to remember, they, they didn't know about this custom. This wasn't a part of what they were doing. And so you got these people that are like, no, thank you. And it was causing, it was becoming an obstacle to Jesus for people to feel belonging. And I'm guessing that whatever you thought in your church, wherever you came from or however you grew up, it, it, it pales in comparison to what's going on here. So that's the stage. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So here it is. Paul has been teaching what? Salvation comes through faith in Jesus. And if you believe Jesus is the Christ, you believe Jesus is the Son, you believe in this resurrection, that's it. Boom, you're in. And so now again, that's this tension that I set up a minute ago. So here's what's going on. They're saying, no, 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 no. It's not that easy. 
Verse 3, the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. Now, the Gentiles were anyone who wasn't Jewish, of a Jewish heritage. It's probably you and I, most of us. And he says, this news made it all the believers very glad. Well, not all. We'll see in a minute. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. i got to imagine that the apostles and the elders and others that were kind of on this negative side of this is going, whew, I'm glad you guys are here. We need to set this straight before this thing gets out of hand anymore. So they reported everything God had done. Verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, now these are, these are Jewish converts. They said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now here's the problem. Within that law, and it's going to make sense in just a second, within that law, you had about 613 or more laws that had to be kept. And it would require the Gentiles to, to, to embrace an entire, it wasn't just a faith, it would require them to embrace an entire different lifestyle. They'd have to change what they eat. They'd have to change the way they dress. They would have to change their holiday schedule, their work schedule. All these things would have to change. And so, verse 7 After a lot of discussion, Peter gets up. This is Peter, the friend of Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who preached that sermon in Acts chapter 2 that started this movement. Peter's seen it all, been through it all, and here's what he says. Brothers, you know that some time ago, underline this, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. And here it is, just as he did with us. Guys, if there is a couple of verses in here that is absolute fire, this is one of those sections. Here's what he says. God already made the choice. And so when God made the choice it relinquished the control of you making the choice. You don't get a choice in this. It's not how do we set up our own boundaries and rules and customs to... No, he says God already made the choice. Now, here's why God is such a great choice maker. Because he goes on to say, he knows the heart. So God made the choice to open the gates and allow everyone in through faith in his son Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And when people were making this choice, God looks and he sees the heart and says, you're in, you're in. Now here's the problem. We don't see the heart, do we? We see behavior. We see behavior. And when we see behavior, we automatically assume we know what's going on in the heart. When we see out here, we automatically assume we know what's going on in here. And when we assume what we know what's going on in here, then we get to make the judgment, well, you're not really in yet. I mean, you kind of show up, but but what I see doesn't tell me necessarily what I want to see. So again, we begin building these barriers. I I don't know the heart. All I know is I see how you dress, especially on the weekend. I see you on Instagram. I I don't know the heart. I just know that you're all tatted up. I'm just telling you where I come from. Jesus 
Jesus, mm-mm, mm-mm. I saw this displayed. My mom and, and sisters got into, we'll call it what the, 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 the word says, sharp dispute. I was so proud of my mom. My cousin had married a guy who was, who was you know, full sleeve tattoo kind of thing. And, and so they were in the kitchen at family reunion. And they were like, can you believe that that's who she would pick? You know, we've been praying for years that she would just pick somebody good and somebody who would help her know the Lord. And my mom let them go on and on until she finally said, you know that Matt's got her going to church. You know that her and Matt are involved in a, in a small group now. Because Matt, it's a priority in his life. And being the good church folk my mom's sisters are, they're like, but, you know, and then they just go to the next thing. I don't know the heart. I don't know the heart. I just know what kind of music you listen to, and there's no good Christians that can listen to that kind of music. I don't, I don't, I don't know the heart. I just know that you don't keep all your stuff straight, and it's very obvious you don't keep all your stuff straight. And you probably don't know, but there's rules about keeping your stuff straight. we got to stop and realize God made the choice based on the heart. And he's going to continue this thought, verse 9. He said, he did it. He did not discriminate between us and them. He takes those two words. He strikes those things. It's, It's we now. It's we language. It's not us and them. He said, for he purified their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts. It doesn't say that he is in the process of purifying them. He says, no, he purified their hearts in faith, this proclamation of faith. He says, now they have pure hearts. But but they they haven't got, he says, "Just, just, just follow with me, listen. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He says, this yoke, or what they would have called like the rabbi's interpretation of law, he says, listen, why are we putting on the neck, the expectation on these new people, laws and yoke, expectations that you can't even fulfill? He says, you guys are teachers of the law. You're mature people. You've been doing this all your life, and you still suck at doing it. So if you suck at doing it, why in the world would you look over here that somebody that has no historical background in this and think they're going to get it? He says, we can't even keep the law. But yet, you want to put it on these, these people? We can't keep up with all of this. And he says, no, that's not what we're doing. We believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. He says, you want to know the gospel? Here it is. It's unmerited, unwarranted, undeserved favor. And he says, you couldn't keep the law, and God still favored you. You couldn't keep up with everything, and God still gave you grace. Let me boil what Peter says down into a sentence. He says, God can purify a heart before you can purify your life. And if he can do that for you, he can do it for other people. He says, if God can purify a heart before you can purify your life in in your life, he can do it in other people's life. And here's what happens in this statement. Grace and truth explode. 
They collide. And you see the beautiful work of both grace and truth begin to interact. And then I love as this thing winds down. Somebody put out on social media a couple days ago, what was my favorite verse? Here it is. So they're winding this meeting down. And this is where you and I get roped into the conversation for all of time. James, another follower of Jesus, stands up and he says, hey, I've got, got one more thing I want to say before we, we close this. After listening to all of this sharp disputing, James says, verse 19, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He says, here, here, after I've listened to all of this, he said, we, those of us who have experienced this grace and are living into not just the grace, but the truth of who Jesus is, we have got to stop making it difficult for people who don't yet know Jesus. And here's the bottom line to this. That's messy. That's unsettling. It's hard. But the conclusion that they take, and they begin to spread, if you read the rest of this, they take that message back to these places, these towns, these villages. And they said, hey, here's the conclusion. After we as church leaders have got together, here's our conclusion. We're going to stop making it difficult. In fact, he tells them two things. He says, if you're with a Jewish person, don't eat bloody meat. That's as rude. And he says, abstain from sexual morality. And I got to imagine somewhere somebody said, but, 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 but there's more. No. For now, just don't eat bloody meat and stop having sex with everybody. But how about, we'll get to that later. But God has purified their heart. Before they purified their action, we'll get there. We'll get there. See, this turning is a process. It's not something that just immediately overnight happens. But that's the expectation we communicate sometimes. Well, now, you know, now that you're going to church, you better get all your stuff together. And I believe that anything we do that makes it difficult for people to get to know Jesus is against the will of God. Guys, you want to know why I stepped out? You want to know why I stepped out and created a church or allowed God to work through me to create a church? Because of that. I had this on my wall in my office for years. Don't make it difficult on the Gentiles who are turning toward Jesus. And I got tired of sidestepping obstacles, having conversations that absolutely did not matter. So here's the, the goal. I want us to become a church that avoids these drifts into these places where it becomes about everything other than the witnessing and the proclamation of the goodness of God. So as we kind of wind down, it's not, the, it's not the landing back there, so give me a second. Real quick, I want to run through three things that just kind of pop up. For our generation, I want us to guard against these. I want us to swim against the current. I'm going to run through these quick. I want us to avoid drifting toward insiders and away from outsiders. You know, the Jewish people weren't a whole lot different. You know, we get really judgy about them too. Like, oh, how could they? You know, that's just, that isn't Christ-like. You know, that, that. but guys... They were comfortable with people who looked and lived like them, and so are we. We clump. We clump together. And it's natural sometimes to cater to the paying customer, and it's natural to, you know, lean in on people who 
or a little more presentable or who are a little easier. And so we gotta, we got to avoid drifting toward insiders and away from outsiders, and we're going to do that by being intentional about it. We're not going to ignore those who are on the outside. We're not going to chain with expectation things that they don't have any sort of context or way of knowing. And we're going to allow God to purify their hearts before they can purify their behaviors. We're going to pray for opportunities. We did that this last week. Fifteen people got together in our offices and just prayed about how, we, we, how can we be a church that just seeks diversity and seeks those who don't look like us. And for an hour and 15 minutes, people poured out their hearts. We didn't even have discussion. We didn't even talk about what it looks like and how to game plan that this fall. We just said, God, God, help us to, 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 to love the outside. Help us to love those who don't look like us. Help us to, to not assume our experience is your experience. God, will you just do something in us that... that makes us more healthy than we currently are. And we know that in order to do that, God, it's going to have to include things that don't look and act and seem like us. So we're going to avoid drifting toward insiders. Second, we're going to avoid drifting toward law and away from grace. I'm not talking about theology here, guys. I'm talking about practical, the way we treat people. And here's, here's let me break it down into a word. We're going to get rid of category thinking. Jew is a category. Gentile was a category. And with those categories then become these policies. And we'll let you know when you have fulfilled the policy in order to change category. You look through all, all, all throughout Scripture, you see this tax collector. That was a category. The woman caught in adultery, that's a category. And it's easy to put people in categories, in places, in boxes. But we're going to again allow grace and truth to collide. So we're going to do fewer policies and more conversations. We said this from day one, that we are going to choose people over policy. See, policy, and like I said, categories are easy. Remember, God knows the heart. And then finally, we're going to avoid drifting toward preserving rather than advancing. You know, I'm going to cut the Jews some slack in this moment, these, these Pharisees some slack. All they were trying to do was protect their God-given traditions and laws. But in the process, they were getting in the way of what God was trying to do in the present, in the current. And in that, they began to serve the created versus the created or the creator. So as we land, here, here's where I want to land this this morning. I believe that the more successful we are, the more we'll have to lose. That's the way we kind of drift. We, we take the greatest risk when we have the least chance of losing something that we believe is successful or that we believe is on its way. So what happens in this, and I think in, as we approach year five, we've had some momentum, we've seen some success as a church, and what I don't want us to do is I don't want us to begin to grip the way we do things and the way it has been so tightly that we lose sight and we lose the judgment that James says of, don't make it difficult. I know you're comfortable, and I know you like the way things are, and, but don't, don't get so tight on the way things have been that you, 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 you become an obstacle. I love what Andy Stanley says. He calls it open-handedness. 
It's this concept where we stop holding on to things that we think matter and that we can see versus things we can't see so tight. And and we approach these situations, we approach people open-handed because we understand that God can give and God can take away. Doesn't matter how how tight I hold it. When God wants it, he's going to take it. And when he wants to give it, he's going to give it. And I don't want us to get caught up in this moment of trying to protect this asset, this, this place, this heritage. And I know we're only four or five in, but we already have kind of a heritage, if you will. So I want us to, in Act 2, continue to begin to think, or have we begun to do something or think a certain way or lean a certain way that might be making it difficult for someone? I don't want us to miss out on the incredible opportunities because we begin to clutch this thing so tight. I had lunch with a former pastor this week, and I say former because in this process, he even said, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with this. Last month, he signed the papers the sale of their building signifying kind of the final chapter of their church history. A church that had thrived in their community for decades. And in the process, it didn't just close a church down, it burned a minister out. And I asked him, I said, what do you accredit? After it's all said and done, the dust has settled. He said, what do you credit to the, to the, to the demise, the, the closing of? He said, well, God does things in his time. I said, well, don't give me the, I know that. He said, it's because we held on to some things we shouldn't have held on to way too tight. And we weren't nearly as loose in some areas that we should have been looser. And when you create that reputation in your community, you're all but doomed. And I look as I arrive around Nashville and I see millions of dollars of real estate that's being changed and turned over and moved all because we can't practice collectively or individually open-handedness. And I think James would stand up and say, shame on you. Let go. Let God do what God does. Let him run wild. And you just enjoy the ride. God has not called us to preserve anything. God has called us to advance his kingdom. And there is a distinct difference between those two things. God has not called me to protect anything. He's called me to move people. And so it's about this generation and the next generation So maybe this week I'll put it back on my wall that just says, stop making it difficult. On the Gentiles who are turning to know God. Just stand with me. I want you to make three three commitments as we walk out the doors this morning. Number one, I want us to commit as a group of people that we will be just as concerned about who we're reaching as about who we're keeping. 
we will be just as concerned. Make this commitment with me that I will be just as concerned with who we're going to reach as, as I am about who we might keep. Number two, I want us to commit today that we will always err on the side of grace. I love Gary O'Brien who sits on our lead team. He says, there's a lot of things I don't want to give account to God, but I don't mind giving account to God on why I love somebody too much, why I extended grace. I think I can defend that to our Savior way more than I can the other side. And I love that spirit. And then I want us to, to say that regardless of what it looks like today, that we will remain open-handed. And by his grace, may we and those who are outside of us come to know Jesus through us and experience the exact same thing.